Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening. Americans are missing an enormous understanding of black resistance and resilience, according to Anna Malika Tubbs. Her new book, The Three Mothers, addresses the omission and fills in missing history. Later this hour, the author will tell us how the mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin shaped a nation. First, a tragic story of betrayal. The movie Judas and the Black Messiah tells the story of Bill O'Neill, a black man faced with two options, go to jail for several years for stealing a car and impersonating a cop, or infiltrate the Black Panther Party for the FBI. He's given the assignment to gather any intelligence on Chairman Fred Hampton, the dynamic leader of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. Ahead of the film's premiere this Friday, I spoke with the award-winning actors Daniel Kaluuya, who portrays Hampton, and Lakeith Stanfield, who portrays O'Neill. Our conversation over Zoom began with Lakeith Stanfield talking about his role in this haunting, powerful film. You appeared in an earlier film with Daniel Kaluuya, Get Out, which was essentially a horror film. And now, having seen Judas and the Black Messiah, I was eager to hear from you which was more terrifying, the plot of Get Out or J. Edgar Hoover? That's a good question. I think those two things go hand in hand. No kidding. Because of Get Out, that's why people can be like J. Edgar Hoover. (laughs) And that's why they can create situations where young Black men are destroyed and young Black people are destroyed by their insecurities because they're in the sunken place. (laughs) So I think they, they honestly go hand in hand together. You know, and the, the terrifying part about it to me is the fact that 
so many people that have their hands in uh, things that cause those situations to be the way they are don't realize that they actually are occupied. They don't understand that they're brainwashed into a space and place where they can believe that it's okay for a 21 year old to get shot in cold blood. You oh know, God. Didn't do nothing. You know what I mean? So because of the brainwash, like that's the issue that people can, you know, get up off of that and, you know, find a true humanity in themselves. Um, then we won't even have these issues. So yeah, I think they, they go hand in hand. Well, speaking of humanity, your character, Bill O'Neill, is an FBI informant sent to infiltrate the Black Panther Party. Did he have any choice but to inform? Well, we always have choices, don't we? But apparently his choices were bad either way. It was uh, you infiltrate a group that you know nothing about or you go to jail or prison for uh, impersonating an officer for several years. So, you know, I think that he must have thought that, you know, he didn't know much about the Black Panthers at first, which is told in the long form interview that he, that he talks about. And so he, and he wasn't really politically aligned with the movement either. He was just like, don't really care. Just want to get some money by any means necessary want some power. And that was his position. Although I think that my position probably would have been inclined personally to be more to fighting a revolution since there was so much injustice going on at the time, but that's what, that's his position. And part of the, what the movie wants to explore is the dangers of being apolitical in moments like this. But as you portray him, he undergoes a huge transformation. You portray Bill O'Neill as an anguished man. And I was wondering how you achieved that emotionally tortured experience that you convey. It was clear to me after understanding the crazy way in which he died, which was killing himself by running into oncoming traffic in the expressway. <sighs> and after, you know, listening to his interview in depth about how he talked about how he felt bad about what he did, but he had to do it anyway. And, you know, how he struggled with not being able to come up with negative information about Chairman Fred Hampton, who he admired, actually. And uh, so I knew that he was doing a lot of the things that he was doing under direct direction from the FBI that he said for reasons, you know, he had to that he didn't really want to express. He had to continue to play the role. So I wanted to give that level of humanity and eternal struggle that he must have been going through, and at least in my interpretation at the time, to be, able, to be able to pull this stuff out. I think maybe even when he was going through them, he might not even have known he was going through those things. But I thought that it was kind of important to, to illustrate, uh, to give nuance and also provide context. And that being more people are like William O'Neill than they are like Chairman Fred Hampton. And if you can connect to that idea, then you maybe see yourself in Bill O'Neill then you can maybe see the ways in which you might be contributing to the war, the war mm. on uh, freedom and black people. Mm. The title of the movie, Judas and the Black Messiah, points to your character, Bill O'Neill, being compared to Judas from the Bible, the disciple who betrayed Jesus and gave him over to the Roman soldiers to be killed. How are these scenarios comparable? It's a metaphor, huh? A lot of stories in the Bible, in my opinion, are metaphors for things we experience. I mean, if you ever read the story of Judas, you realize that, yeah, he was, was a disciple and someone that was close to Jesus. And then 
ended up betraying him, giving him over to the powers that be. It's really similar to what this story was. Um, William O'Neill got really close and became security captain of the chapter and then ended up supplying floor plans to the FBI, or which would be synonymous with the Romans, and getting him killed. Early in the film, your character tries to steal a car, impersonating an FBI agent himself. And when he's arrested, he tells the real FBI agent that it's more powerful to carry a badge than a gun. What was your reaction the first time you read that line? At first I was like, hmm, it's a curious thing to think about, a badge being stronger than a gun. And then I thought, you know, actually a badge is only strong because of a gun. That's the only thing that makes the badge carry any weight. It's backed up by guns. If you don't do what I say with this badge, then you must meet the gun. And to some extent, I guess that means that the badge is a preliminary to the threats of violence. But I don't know if that necessarily makes it stronger as it exists. I think the gun is actually stronger than the badge. That was his interpretation. The movie is terrifying and how much the story feels appropriate to this moment, to our reckoning with racial injustice, particularly over the last year. With the brutality of the Chicago police scenes conveyed in this film, and of course the unconscionable actions of the FBI, were you thinking about Black Lives Matter? I mean, I'm black, so I've always been thinking about my life and how it relates to uh, the, the powers of being and structures. And I always have seen it as unfair throughout history and uh, seen it as some cowardice in terms of the people in positions of power. But the movement itself, to me, wasn't really nothing new. I mean, this is what we've been saying for all our lives is that, you know, can y'all please get the hell up off of us? <laughs> you know, like we're just human beings like everybody else. And if you leave us alone, uh, as you can see, you know, we'll, we, we do some great things, but, you know, everybody always got to be in our business and, and uh, messing with us and, and antagonizing us for some reason. So, no, it was nothing new, though. You know, it's just a, and, and that's a shame because we shouldn't have to all these years later still be saying the same thing we've been saying. But a lot of the government, they still be on the same stuff. You think they changed since then? You know? Well, at least Hoover's gone. <laughs> There's a little, you know, good positive. Lakeith, this has been a privilege again, and bravo. It's a magnificent performance you give. Thank you. Actor Lakeith Stanfield discussing his role as Bill O'Neill in the new film Judas and the Black Messiah. After a short break, I'll speak with Daniel Kaluuya, who plays the role of Fred Hampton in the movie, which premieres Friday. You're listening to WABE Atlanta.
This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The new film, Judas and the Black Messiah, will stream on HBO and play in select theaters beginning Friday. Ahead of its premiere, I spoke with the actor Daniel Kaluuya, who portrays Fred Hampton, the charismatic chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. It's not a, it's not a question of violence or nonviolence. It's a question of resistance to fascism or non-existence within fascism. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder liberation. You can murder revolutionary, but you can't murder revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. so honored to talk with you. I just am a tremendous admirer of your work and cheered when you were nominated for that Oscar in 2017 for Get Out. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, speaking of Get Out, that movie was essentially a horror film. And having just watched Judas and the Black Messiah... I wondered which you thought more terrifying, the machinations in Get Out or J. Edgar Hoover in real life? I think um, I think what black people go through in the Western society is absolutely horrifying. That's how I feel. And I feel anyone that enforces that, you know, people that instigate horror. He, he's a monster. And that certainly comes through resoundingly. Well, no, no, but Lois, what's scarier? He's a human being. Oh, no, he wasn't. Oh, no, 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 <laughs> he's a human being. That's what's scary. It's like, it's kind of going, he's a human being can do monstrous things. And when we understand that and understand that, then we can deal with it. You know what I'm saying? If we other them, then we're just going, oh, there's a monster. That's not so like, no, there's a, Edgar Hoover's out there. He's out there. He's, this is a, this is a man. It's a man with an agenda. You know what I'm saying? And with fear, with fear, with deep fear. And it's just understanding that, with, with, if you don't deal with your fear, people will be hurt, you know, and um, and people will suffer. And there's generations of black people that have suffered as a result, not of monsters' behaviors, as a result of white fear. Though your perfect command of American English does not reveal it, you are British, born and raised in London. When did you learn about Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party? Late teens early 20s running around and then um, kind of I remember seeing uh, the date of Chairman Fred the date he was born and the date he was assassinated going that doesn't make sense how old was he how old was he what happened like and then uh, and then going on Wikipedia hunt and going oh wow he really was 21 and then reading up about that briefly and knowing that later on in life I really do want to take a deep dive in it because this really is something that belongs in history books at the very young age of 21 Hampton was a brilliant organizer. He formed very unlikely alliances. He was a fantastic speaker. And he 
embodied the revolutionary vision he believed possible. Daniel, your interpretation of Fred Hampton in this movie conveys a gentle person, a sweetness, which isn't the first thing one associates with a gun-toting revolutionary. Would you talk about bringing out the vulnerability and the softer nature of Fred Hampton? Again, Lois, he's a human being, you know? And someone that deeply loves their community and deeply loves their own and deeply loves himself. When you're in, in your bed with your woman, you're not, you're a man that's in the bed with, with your woman, you know? And it's, it was so important to show that side in this narrative to, to so that the public can see who was assassinated, you know? That, to see it from his perspective, to see it from the Black Panther's perspective, not from the establishment saying that this is a terrorist organization or that it was they were gun-toting revolutionaries and they were carrying guns because it's legal to carry guns in America, you know? It, it was, and then they were protecting themselves. They were protecting themselves and protecting uh, their own. Well, the film brings out so much of the good that they were trying to do, combating hunger, providing better education, health care they wanted for their community. Chairman Fred's ideology inspired the Black Panthers to give back to the community. And in contrast, we see how the FBI special agent Roy Mitchell compares the Black Panther Party to the Ku Klux Klan, saying they're the same. They just incite violence on different sides. What, what are your thoughts about that comparison? I think it's a window into how a lot of um, white people think about the Black Panther Party and white people think about black people who love themselves, is that if you take care of yourself and take care of your own, it's taken in a way that you are, they, they take it personally in a sense that it's an attack against them because of how they see you, you know? And so, and I think it was incredible, it was so important within this film to show a window into that perspective, to show it, to kind of go, this is what they think and this is what they did. You know, how can you compare, compare the Ku Klux Klan to these people who um, did so much good for their community? And it's just to show it and go, you, you, you figure it out, you know? I read that when you're feeling especially lonesome or in need, or facing a very challenging day of work, your comfort is calling your mom. <laughs> and that scene you did with Jake Winter's mother is one for the ages. Daniel, I saw that your background initially was in improv. Mm -hmm. Do you draw from any improv techniques when you're in a scripted role such as this? Yeah, I think it's the foundation of, of what I do. You know, it's like the, one of the biggest things you learn in improv is just listening and reacting. You know, it's not, not having a prepared, this is, I'm gonna say the line like this. I'm gonna to listen to how you say the line, understand how I feel about it and then I'm gonna say it. So it's, if someone decides to say the line differently, I can't say it the same. It just ensures presence. You have to stay present, you have to stay clear. And also in, especially I used it on Judas of understanding that like in certain scenes, one of the 
like ideas I had when I was doing improv. Like when you're in your head, you're dead. You know, if you're overthinking it, you're out of you're out of it. You know, so you kind of I just stayed in my body and stayed in it. Amazing. Do you still write? Yeah, I still write. Yeah. I guess your career trajectory has been very impressive in recent years with your acting. Do you aspire to more writing and even directing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like my mom said, you can write when you're 50. <laughs> you can act when you're 50. No, she was just like, go out and get it now. Like, go and get it now. You got to get it now. But like, I, I can see myself like growing into more behind the scenes. I, I enjoy that. I really do enjoy it. Like, because I, I, it's truly creative. And, uh, but yeah, like I'm blessed to be in a position that I have the option. I just I exercise it. Well, your portrayal is just magnificent. And I thank you so much for this opportunity. I look forward to your next film. Thanks so much, Lois. The award-winning actor Daniel Kaluuya discussing his role as Chairman Fred Hampton in the new film Judas and the Black Messiah. The movie will be in select theaters and on HBO this Friday. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Christina Yoon is an Atlanta-based filmmaker and director. Her latest film, Mirror, takes a close look at Korean beauty standards and the extreme measures people will take to achieve their idea of perfection. I spoke with Christina via Zoom last fall when her film began streaming online and asked her to explain the differences in beauty standards between the U.S. and South Korea. I do think there is a difference. I mean, of course, in America, it's, it's here, the Western standards of beauty. We see it every day in social media and in the media of um, a kind of idealized beauty that isn't very realistic but in korean culture it's part of everyday life of the the value of beauty it's part of the society i mean when you apply for jobs in korea you are required to send in a headshot no matter what with your resume no matter what job you're applying for if your looks don't matter at all and it's so common in korean culture for young teenagers to get plastic surgery procedures done, small procedures done. It's very much the norm there. And 
I, I think it, it, it was something that I questioned very deeply when I lived there. I felt myself being affected by those pressures of, of feeling that if, you know, I wasn't dressed up a certain way or didn't have makeup on that I wouldn't, you know, be taken seriously or, or treated nicely. It's quite severe there, yeah, and that's something I wanted to explore. This fascinates me because what I'm about to tell you is strictly anecdotal, but it also supports everything you're saying. There is a brilliant Korean-American violinist, Sarah Chang, whom I interviewed the first time when she was a very young teenager. And I was asking her what it was like to perform before Queen Elizabeth. And, uh, you know, she had had this extraordinary career already as a child. And she was just this very normal kid off stage who said she loved spending most of her time shopping for clothes. <laughs> and, and, you know, that that's not unusual for a teenage girl. But the next time she visited, I noticed how exquisitely she was made up. And this was an afternoon interview after a long rehearsal at Symphony Hall. And a friend of mine who was in the building at the time said, you know, when I remarked on how pulled together Sarah was, my friend said, well, she's Korean, what do you expect? And and I said, well, I didn't know that, knew any particular nationality. And then a, a friend of ours who is an academic, also Korean-born, when I told her this story about Sarah Chang, she said that, her mother will not leave the house to go grocery shopping unless she is completely dolled up, including wearing gloves. I mean, how many ladies wear gloves anymore? So I guess this is cultural, but do you know how far back it goes? Was was there an emphasis on beauty in ancient times? You know, I've, I've really thought about that um, and I've wondered about it. You know, I'm no historian, but I do have my suspicions that it has something to do possibly with Korea's very fast economic rise. You know, Korea was a third world country just some decades ago and there was a huge economic boom in the 80s, 90s and 2000s where it is now one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world, extremely modern and, and very wealthy. And so I think the speed at, as to which the country developed might have something to do with that, where, you know, um, some decades ago, there wasn't enough money to, to eat properly. And now there's a surplus of money that is being spent on, on these new things that are important for the current society. Luxurious. Very good insight. The story of Mira follows a Korean woman wanting to get a scar removed from her face. That doesn't seem 
unusual. I mean, it's still voluntary cosmetic surgery, but having a scar removed is not the same as wanting a facelift or a nose job. What can you tell us about Yona, the main character, and the pressures she feels about her disfiguration? I think that you're absolutely right that removing a scar doesn't seem to be much of an issue. And that's certainly what she goes into the hospital to do. She finds herself then pressured by the hospital to go beyond that um, with the mentality of, if you're going to do a procedure, why not go all the way? And why not make yourself as beautiful as possible? So that's sort of the question that she's facing now is, is it enough for me to remove the scar? And and will I be able to look myself in the mirror and and feel that I'm worthy and beautiful? Or do I need to go even more extreme? And ultimately, I think that the question is one of her emotional state of of how she feels about herself, her mental state psychologically, you know, someone could get a procedure done and feel like it's not enough and want to keep getting more and more. And it has more to do with her mental health than anything else, I think. Absolutely. And I've read that you are especially interested in exploring identity in your films and your characters. In Mirror, Yona watches K-pop stars on video. How have K-pop idols and their appearance influenced Korean culture? I think that it has pushed it to to a level of perfection um, that was not there before. I think that also Many K-pop stars are pressured to be pushed towards a specific beauty ideal of being thin, extremely thin, of being pale, of having large eyes, of being feminine. And so the, the specificity of that, of how narrow that is and how it's not widely accepting of many different types of beauty, I think is putting a specific kind of pressure on Korean society. In the film, Yiona, goes to an underground black market hospital known as the Hallelujah Hospital. What kind of procedures do the doctors at that hospital perform? Well, it is, it's a fictional hospital, but I think that they probably perform all kinds of procedures. Um, Double eyelids uh, surgeries are very common in Asian um, culture and you know, breast augmentation. There's a very popular one that is quite actually life-threatening, which is slimming of the jaw, shaving down the actual bone of the jaw. That's something that some women will do to change the shape of their face and just have a smaller, slimmer, less masculine jawline. So it's just, it can really run the gamut. And there are such hospitals, I mean, perhaps not as extreme, but cosmetic surgery clinics, these are abundant in Korea? Uh, Cosmetic surgery clinics are abundant, absolutely. Um, You can get plastic surgery on any corner of uh, some of the more luxurious areas of Seoul. You know, the black market 
plastic surgery issue is pretty prevalent in the United States as well for breast implants and butt implants and everything you, you do. I, in my research, I've heard horror stories of women who feel like they can't afford the real thing and they feel so insecure about themselves or they desire it so badly that they take the risk and they just go with someone not certified. Atlanta-based filmmaker Christina Yoon. Her film Mirror is streaming at multiple online festivals, the next being the Seattle Asian American Film Festival on March 4th. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzis. Thank you for listening. Anna Malaika Tubbs has a groundbreaking perspective in her new book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. The author joins us now via Zoom ahead of her event with Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms today at the Atlanta History Center. Anna Malika Tubbs, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Alberta King, Louise Little, and Bertis Baldwin. Why are their names barely familiar, though their sons shaped the course of American history in the 20th century? That is the question that really has guided my research. It's really a crime that we've erased their lives and forgotten their names or never learned their names at all. Especially as I show through the book, they were so influential on their sons' lives. Their sons gave their mothers credit for so much of what they were able to accomplish for our world. And they were important even before they had these sons. They were artists, they were activists, writers. Uh, They all had their own passions and talents and were contributing to the Black freedom movement in their own ways. And it's just time that the world know their names. So I'm really, I feel honored that I get to be the person who introduces them in many ways to a larger audience who should have known them all along. Yeah. Ani, you have an impressive academic background with Stanford and Cambridge degrees. Thank you, you are, yeah, you're a PhD candidate in sociology at Cambridge University now. Yes. Would you talk about the role of this book on the three mothers in terms of your research? Absolutely. I started the research as part of my PhD program. Uh, It's actually very similar to my dissertation. They're different in the sense that the dissertation has a lot more theory. It's kind of more dry, not as interesting to read, Um, but (laughs) it allowed me to really explore liberatory motherhood theory and a lot of these sociological concepts around motherhood. But I really knew as I was starting that research that I wanted to join other scholars that were correcting the erasure of Black women's lives. I was extremely inspired by authors like Margot Lee Shetterly, as well as Isabel Wilkerson, uh, Brittany Cooper, and their ability to show how important it is to understand Black American history and Black American lives in order to understand American history and where we are as a country today. So having that theoretical background is definitely helpful. But I should note that the book really 
does not read like a dissertation. I tried my best. I'm also a fiction writer. So I definitely bring in that creative writing and it's, it's enjoyable to read if I can say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't say these three women didn't contribute to history. The contributions of MLK, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin are very distinct from one another. How did each mother's background inform the work of their sons? Yes, I'll introduce them each briefly. I'll start with Alberta King. I'll just go alphabetically by their first names. Alberta was born to two parents who really made Ebenezer Baptist what it is today when uh, they started at the church. There were only about 14 members. And from there, they grew it to be this beacon of hope in the upcoming civil rights movement. They were boycotting papers that disparaged Black community members. They protested until the first Black public high school was opened in Atlanta. They used, you know, these very peaceful ways of demonstrating, even though they weren't using the same words like nonviolence. These were the lessons that they taught their daughter, that faith was not faith without a commitment to social justice and fulfilling that here on earth in the way that Jesus would want us to. And so this is what Alberta believes through and through. She's the daughter of Ebenezer Baptist Church. She teaches others around her. She's this beautiful, incredible instrumentalist, and she's brilliant and gets a college degree. And even when she meets her husband, Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., at the time, he's considered illiterate when he meets her. Um, they're around the same age, but he doesn't have the same opportunities that she does. And she helps him get into Morehouse and she tutors him through his education. So even his path as a reverend really can't be completed without his wife. And we see that in his autobiography. He thanks her for that. It's a love letter to his wife because he knows without her, his life would have been completely different. So then of course we have the introduction of MLK Jr who follows in his maternal steps and his maternal grandparents steps and his mother's steps. Of course, he has influence from his father. I'm not trying to erase the father at all. But I also want to make sure that we complete the puzzle without knowing about Alberta's life. You really don't understand where MLK Jr. came up with all of these ideas around nonviolence and this kind of disciplined um, approach to what he saw as the way to, to accomplish Black freedom. I'll leave Alberta King there for now. Um, Louise Little, oh sorry, Bertus Baldwin to go alphabetical. <laughs> she was born in Deal Island, Maryland, tiny, tiny town. It was really difficult to find a lot of information because, you know, smaller places aren't as well recorded in history. Uh, but what we know is that she was born to a kind of tragic situation. She never got to know her mother very well. In my own research, I actually think her mother passed away in childbirth. Um, I can't confirm that 100%, but her death certificate says that she died the same month and year that Burtis was born from hemorrhaging. And of course, this is not uncommon um, and still is not uncommon today for Black mothers to lose their lives in childbirth, tragically. And so Burtis, in this moment of darkness and pain, really finds light, love, and hope. That's what she chooses to focus on. And everyone who knew her says that this is something she carries forward through the rest of her life, that you have to confront the darkness. You can't necessarily run or hide from it, but you also can't hold on to pain or hatred. You have to focus on moving forward and being kind of a witness to the power of light. And of course, we see so much of that in James Baldwin's works. He even calls himself a witness to the power of light and love. And he saw himself as being completely interconnected with his mother, 
even when he died, you know, one of his dying wishes was that he would have a double plot grave so that when she passed away after him, she would be buried right next to him. So if you go and visit his grave, it's this shared plaque that says her name in one corner, his in the other, and Baldwin right in the middle. She had eight other children. So to speak about the, the closeness of these two and not know her name and think that you're a fan of James Baldwin, again, you're missing even what he saw as one of the most important parts of his life, his relationship with his mother. What should we know about Bertis Baldwin's love for language? Yes, she was a writer, this incredible, again, brilliant writer. Uh, at first, when I started the research, I you know, didn't know much about the women, of course. I was finding all these needles and haystacks and trying to put the pieces of their lives together. And I wasn't sure if she was even educated. Of course, this was a privilege at the time. They were all born in the early 1900s. And I asked her family members that were willing to speak with me, I said, you know, I'm sorry if this is a sensitive question, but was she educated? And immediately they all said, oh my goodness, yes, absolutely. She was the most brilliant writer that we ever knew. All of her letters were filled with this language that was metaphor and simile and inspiring, again, with these messages of love and hope and light. And even the principals at James Baldwin schools commented on the fact that her letters excusing his absences were beautifully written. I don't know how you write a beautiful <laughs> note that's excusing an absence, but the fact that it was noteworthy really speaks to her, her use of language. Yeah, you, you point out that she wrote poetry. So this gorgeous lyrical quality to James Baldwin's writing um, he came by from his mother. Yes, yes, his talent. So with the sons, it's, it's not only the lessons that they learn, it's not only the way they approach their lives and approach the freedom struggle, it's also their direct talents and skills that are inherited from their mothers. And then now it's to move forward with Louise Little. She was born outside of the country. She was born in Grenada. Uh, her family is really powerful, strong. They teach her about her many different uh, cultures, Carib Indian culture, West African culture, all about these fighters against colonizers, white supremacy, and how they believed that you stand up for your rights no matter what. And you don't allow others to, to tell you that you're less than, and you're, you have to confront your fear. And so she travels at the age of 17. She leaves Grenada on her own and joins this Marcus Garvey Pan-African movement in Montreal, Canada. So he's, you know, becoming this international orator, speaking all about Black independence, Black self-sufficiency, um, fighting against the notion of assimilation. And she wants to join that. And so she, as a writer herself, she's also, again, very talented with words and language, is well-educated. She wants to contribute her talents to this larger fight for Black lives. And she joins the movement in Montreal, where she meets her husband. Um, and there's more that I could say, of course, uh, their parallels continue. But when we talk about Malcolm X, he didn't just wake up thinking, this is my approach to the movement. Instead, he said, this is how my parents taught me to think about the importance of Black pride, Black unity, uh, and not assimilating to white culture, instead being proud of who we are as individuals and as an individual community. One of the things I found fascinating that you wrote was about 
how Louise Little expanded the education of her children. Would you talk about that briefly? Yes, I love that as well. She was very aware that the world was trying to control her children's minds and that as Black children, there were going to be multiple different ways that people would try to attack her kids. Um, and one of, that, one of those ways was through making them think that they were less than by the what they were taught and what kind of history they were taught and from what perspective. And so every time her children come back from school, she has this routine where they sit down at the kitchen table. She's put newspaper clippings out from three different newspapers um, from around the world. And also to allow them to know that this struggle for, for Black freedom is something that's international. It's not only happening in the States, but that they're part of something much, much larger and that they have to contribute to that as well. But they read out loud these papers and if they don't know any of the words, she stops them and makes sure that they go to the dictionary, learn the word, and then come back and continue their reading. So even when we think about Malcolm X later, when this kind of famous story of him writing every word from the dictionary down when he's in prison and then later in a reformatory program, we missed part of the puzzle, which is actually that his brother reminded him, and there's a letter where he says, remember what mom taught us. And that's when he says, I'm going to go back to this practice of the dictionary and does the thing that he'd been doing with her since he was a little boy. Why have these mothers been ignored or omitted from historic consideration? There's a lot that I could say about that. I think that as Black women, we still feel this kind of erasure to this day. Many put so much pressure on our shoulders and so much burden to take care of others and take care of our families, but we're never thanked for the work that we do. Instead, we're only blamed if something goes quote unquote wrong. We don't talk about the circumstances that have pushed Black families into situations that we don't want to be in. And instead, quite often, we've blamed Black mothers. This happened with the Moynihan Report in you know, the 60s. It happened with so many different tropes that tried to vilify Black mothers and Black women, like the Jezebel trope and the Mammy and the Matriarch and the Welfare Queen that just continue to erase our humanity. And by not knowing their stories today, it's a continued part of this dehumanization and this erasure. Um, and I really think it comes down to a lack of appreciation for the work that Black women have done, not only for our families, but for this entire nation. What does the proximity and age of the three mothers allow you to explore? Yes, that's actually how I narrowed down who I was going to write about. Uh, I had so many different options in terms of people who I felt very inspired by and mothers that I could write about. I think that there's endless amounts of stories left to tell and I hope more of them will be told now. But I ended up deciding on these three because the mothers were all born within six years of each other and then the sons were all born, the famous sons, we're all born within five years of each other later in the 20s. And that allowed me to also offer a perspective of a century of American history through the lives and the experiences of Black women and to see the world through their eyes. So I could talk about, and which is what I do in the book, I give clear historic examples so that we can think about how, you know, each world war affected them differently, how the Great Depression affected them, 
how, you know, the Cold War, how each president and their policies impacted their lives differently. And I, I give this new approach to our, our country's history and a new understanding for how we arrived where we are today. Two of these women lost young sons to violent death. The loss of a child is irreconcilable to a parent. These sons were murdered. How did the mothers continue their lives? It's heartbreaking. And even before I speak about that ability to continue, I want to note how important it was to me that we also understand the humanity of the sons. We've thought about them as these historic figures. And I think in a lot of ways, we forget that they were human beings with their own feelings, with their own families, how painful it was for them to even do their work day in and day out and risk their lives uh, for the rest of us. Um, and so I want to remind the world again of their humanity as well as their mother's humanity. But it's something that's important to pay attention to. All three of the mothers outlived their sons. MLK Jr., Malcolm X, yes, were shot when they were so young, really at the prime of their lives. Their families were very young. Their children were very young. And the mothers really saw their role almost change a little bit, that they now needed to be part of their grandchildren's journeys and they needed to educate the next generation of their families and continue the legacy that they'd pass on to their children and that their children had now passed back to them in passing. And they thought they found it important to continue that work uh, to focus again on moving forward. With Alberta, she had to focus on her faith. And this was what she preached her whole life, you know, that this was part of God's plan, even if she didn't understand it, and she just needed to keep going forward. It's something I also wish I'd known more about if we could find letters that the mothers wrote themselves or, you know, had heard more from their perspective, because I think we assume um, many times, even today, that these Black mothers have this kind of supernatural strength. And so we focus more on, wow, they were able to push forward and look how strong they were. But I'm sure that there was much more to it. I'm sure there was much more conflict, much more sadness, much more anger than they allowed others to see. Anger and anguish. Anna, how has honoring these three mothers informed your own motherhood? It's been really a powerful and very epic journey, uh, not only completing this book, but I also became a mother through this whole process. I was in the middle of my research when I found out I was expecting my son. And part of that, of course, very exciting. I was overwhelmed with joy, but any mother knows that you also are, are overwhelmed with fear. You start to worry about everything that could hurt your child, and especially as a Black woman in the United States where really you are risking your life in a lot of ways, no matter how educated you are, no matter how much income you have, you're more likely to die in childbirth and in pregnancy if you're a black woman in the United States. And that fear is something that I was able to confront by spending this time learning about Alberta Burtis and Louise's lives. They never gave up, they never accepted these things as inevitable lots but instead said, we are part of transforming this world for ourselves and for our children. And our children will join us in making that change 
something that's possible and bringing our vision of what's possible in our nation to life, making that reality. So that was inspiring for me. It allowed me to see motherhood as something that's powerful, influential. Uh, you know, so many mothers comment on the fact that they really feel they lose their identities and people don't appreciate them anymore and they don't pay attention to them as individuals. They don't care what their own passions were anymore. And I could see in these three women how they were able to keep their own identities alive and make sure that their sons knew that they were human beings as well. They had this balance of both vulnerability as well as strength. But I feel that their ability to be honest with their children also allowed these sons to have a very deep understanding of the human condition and was also a, an important component of their ability to, to transform the systems that they were able to impact for all of us. So yeah, I would, I guess to summarize it, it made me feel strong. It made me feel hopeful, even in those moments of fear. Anna Malika Tubbs. Her new book is The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. The author will appear in a virtual conversation with Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, hosted by the Atlanta History Center this evening at 7. More information will be on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Our producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would just so love it if you would follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen to past interviews and shows from our archives at wabe.org slash City Lights. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.